From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Since the repeal of Roe v. Wade in June of 2022, the fight for reproductive freedom has increasingly centered on medication abortion. The two-pill regimen allows pregnant people to safely terminate pregnancies with medicine alone. Since the FDA approved one of the medications used, mifepristone, in 2000, the method has grown to now account for 54% of abortions performed nationwide. For that reason, anti-abortion advocates view it as a threat and are looking to take mifepristone off of the shelves across the United States. That's the goal behind a new lawsuit filed in November of 2022 by the Alliance Defending Freedom, otherwise known as ADF. The ADF is suing the FDA to rescind its approval of mifepristone. Now, if the suit is successful, it could drastically limit access to medication abortion across the country and force millions of Americans seeking abortions to undergo procedures, carry unwanted pregnancies to term, not have access to miscarriage care, and more. This nightmare is already playing out and causing pain and trauma for people who can get pregnant in the 12 states where abortion is banned. And this lawsuit could bring these realities to all 50 states. The stakes are so high. Here to talk with us about this dangerous lawsuit, the importance of mifepristone for reproductive health care, and how the ACLU is showing up to preserve that care nationwide is Andy Beck, Senior Staff Attorney at the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Andy, I want to start by just addressing the logic of this lawsuit and try to understand how this came to be. The Alliance Defending Freedom brought this case in 2022 to challenge the FDA's approval for mifepristone, which the FDA approved 22 years ago in 2000. The lawsuit argues that the FDA essentially erred in approving the drug because they say it's unsafe and because the agency, they say, did not have the authority to approve it. So I want to unpack this. First off, can the Alliance Defending Freedom really come into court more than two decades after the FDA approved a drug and ask a court to tell the FDA to take it off the market? I mean, the answer should be no. Um, And I think it's important, you know, at the outset to put in context that what ADF is asking the court to order here is completely unprecedented. There has never been a court order requiring the FDA to take any drug off the market along the lines of what ADF is asking for here. And again, that's true of any drug, but, you know, say nothing of a drug that's been on the market for more than two decades, that's been used by millions of people, and that has, you know, an exceptional safety and efficacy record. But I think you're right that the fact that the approval happened so long ago highlights you know, one of just a multitude of serious procedural problems with ADF's case. Um, So, you know, we can start with the statute of limitations, right? This is not how things are supposed to work. If FDA approved something decades ago, 
someone can't come into court 22 years later when there's a six-year statute of limitations and ask the agency to undo that work. But that's just, you know, one of just a ton of serious procedural defects with this case. Yeah, and we're going to get into those right now. Um, We've seen that Mifepristone has actually been studied to not only be safe, but safer than common prescriptions like Viagra, penicillin, other over-the-counter medications like Tylenol. By all accounts, the plaintiffs are, I mean, essentially espousing some level of falsehoods about the health risks here. Is this going to jeopardize the case? In a normal world, the answer should be yes. Um, You're totally right about the safety of mifepristone. We can start with abortion safety, um, which, you know, abortion itself is a safe procedure and medication abortion with mifepristone is no different. Um, You know, as I said a second ago, 4 million patients, more than 4 million patients in the United States have taken it um, and it has an exceptional record of safety. And you don't have to take my word for it. Um, You can take the word of trusted medical authorities Um, and trusted scientific authorities that have looked to the substantial body of evidence here and reached the exact same conclusion that the FDA did about mifepristone safety. So, you know, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the American Medical Association, they've looked at the evidence and said, mifepristone is exceptionally safe. The National Academies of Science, which is one of the sort of trusted scientific authorities in this country, Um, did a comprehensive review of all of the evidence on mifepristone and determined that complications occur in just a tiny fraction of a percent of patients and that the risks of mifepristone are on the same order of magnitude as many common over-the-counter medications um, and commonly prescribed medications like antibiotics. So, you know, in a normal world, this would certainly jeopardize ADF's case. In fact, it wouldn't just jeopardize their case, it should put an end to their case because the case is about, you know, the notion, according to ADF, that the FDA didn't have enough evidence to conclude that mifepristone is safe. And in fact, the FDA had a ton of evidence and all of the evidence since its original determination to approve this medication has bolstered the, you know, sound conclusion that mifepristone is an extraordinarily safe drug. That should be the end of this case. But it's not. (laughs) Uh, The plaintiffs also argued that the FDA lacked legal authority to approve mifepristone because of the Comstock laws. So let's just start out with what are the Comstock laws? So the Comstock laws are old federal statutes from dating back to the 1800s. Um, They are the brainchild of someone named Anthony Comstock, who was uh, a so-called anti-vice crusader from the 19th century. Mm. He was also the U.S. Postal Inspector in the 19th century. He, he's he been called by the Supreme Court an anti-vice crusader who thought that anything remotely touching on sex was obscene. So that's who this person is. And ADF in this case um, says that, you know, these old laws that were the brainchild of Anthony Comstock, but which are still on the books, Um, make it a crime to send abortion-inducing drugs in the mail. And so FDA couldn't have approved mifepristone in the first place. The problem, if you want me to get into it, is that... Yeah, let's get into it. These laws have never, in all of their years on the books, been interpreted or enforced to bar the use of drugs for lawful abortion care. 
And so that was the determination of courts that have looked at this question. And in fact, the Department of Justice's Office of Legal Counsel recently issued an opinion in December of 2022 saying that, you know, the Comstock laws don't apply to medications that are used for lawful abortions. So the arguments are totally meritless. You know, I think it's pretty striking that ADF here is trying to take advantage of these old laws in a way that they've never been understood or enforced and basically, like, force the views or try to force the views of a 19th century morality activist on the Mm -hmm. entire country. Um, Again, it's creative. I'll give them that. It's creative, but it's extremely dangerous. And and the implications are... um, are staggering. What have the Comstock laws been able to be applied to? They haven't, I mean, they've largely sat quietly on the books and ignored for, you know, more than a century. They're kind of a vestige. There are a lot of old laws on the books in states and in, you know, in the federal code that, you know, sit quietly because there's a collective understanding that is shared by, you know, Congress's acquiescence in this understanding that the laws don't mean what ADF is suggesting they mean here. So, you know, they may have at one time been used to, for example, try and target mailing obscene materials. Back when uh, Janet Reno was the Attorney General of the United States, she basically, you know, took a stand and said, that's unconstitutional, the laws can't be used for that purpose. So ADF is really going out on a limb, to say the least, to say that these laws mean that the FDA couldn't have approved of mifepristone all the way back in 2000. Now, a fallback argument that the plaintiffs raise is that the FDA has gotten rid of certain restrictions for mifepristone over the last 20 years. Has this increased access made mifepristone actually more vulnerable? I mean, it's a good question because it is what they say in this case, but it is not a valid argument. Um, So you're right that, you know, over the years, certain restrictions that were placed originally on mifepristone when it was approved have been lifted by the FDA, including in 2016. And what the FDA was doing when it was lifting those restrictions was following the evidence, because the evidence, the scientific evidence that always happens when there's a drug out there in the world, showed that those restrictions were not necessary to ensure safe use of mifepristone. And so in following the evidence in that regard, the FDA was doing exactly what it ought to do, which is to lift medically unnecessary restrictions. Frankly, the FDA should have lifted more medically unnecessary restrictions on mifepristone um, because there still remains some on the books that are contrary to good medical practice and what the evidence shows. What the FDA did when it lifted some of the most onerous of those restrictions was exactly the right thing to do following the evidence. And ADF's suggestion here that you know, it didn't have the evidence to back that up as, you know, again, it just completely ignores, you know, what the evidence in this case shows. Um, Mifepristone is safe and it should be, you know, accessible on the same terms as other safe and effective drugs are. So Andy, I I have to ask this just because I think it's like the most obvious question. There are so many faults in this argument that just could not be or would not be applied to any other kind of uh, drug that's in the same kind of situation or, you know, we've talked about Tylenol, we've talked about uh, Viagra. How is a court even taking this up? I mean, you're right. In a normal world, this case wouldn't have made it into the courthouse doors, much less, um, you know, present the kind of 
serious threat that I think we are all concerned about here. You know, there's any of a number of reasons why we should all be really concerned here. But, you know, abortion is a controversial topic. And sometimes, you know, we see some of the normal rules of the road in court go out the window when abortion is at stake. And I think, you know, this case presents that, you know, a threat of that same situation. Thank you for that. I think it's important to be clear that we're only kind of in this situation because it's abortion we're talking about. Um, I want to talk about the stakes and the fallout from what we're what we could potentially see coming out of this case. So in January, the FDA moved to make mifepristone more accessible by allowing pharmacies such as CVS and Walgreens to dispense it. Granted that they follow particular rules, but this increased access may actually soon turn to becoming no access, which is really what we're super worried about here. Granting the request to temporarily freeze the FDA's approval of mifepristone would end access to medication abortions nationwide. How would taking mifepristone off of the market impact people who are seeking abortions or seeking miscarriage care across the country? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's hard to overstate the impact of such a ruling. It's terrifying. It is terrifying. I mean, I think it is, um, it's potentially greater than the impact of the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs to overrule uh, or overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, you mentioned earlier, mifepristone accounts for 54% of um, the abortions in this country. It's how the majority of abortions are practiced in the country. It's fundamental to people's ability to decide for themselves whether or not to become a, uh, a parent. Um, if it's not available, clinics could not come close to meeting patients' needs And that's true in states that have chosen to protect abortion access, like California or New York or Illinois. It would have enormous effects beyond just medication abortion itself. It would have a tremendous impact on the availability of abortion, period. Procedural abortion isn't a one-to-one substitute for medication abortion. So if you take the way that more than half of abortions are done in this country off the table— You can't just substitute procedural abortion. It takes more time, as you mentioned. Um, It takes more staff resources. A lot of clinics provide only medication abortion because they they literally don't have the physical space to have the equipment to perform procedural abortions. There's just a lack of capacity across the country to just be able to snap your fingers and replace how more than half the abortions in this country are done with another method. And that's, you know, again, to say nothing about patient preference, right? There's a reason that some people choose one form of abortion or an, over another. And some people prefer to have a procedural abortion for a host of reasons, but other people prefer to have a medication abortion for a host of reasons. And this lawsuit threatens to take that choice away, but really more fundamentally, take the ability for many people to have an abortion altogether off the table. In the wake of Dobbs, clinics in states where abortion is allowed are overwhelmed by the influx of patients, not only from that state, but from neighboring states that have banned abortion who are trying to get the care that they need. And if you eliminate the way that half of abortions are done in this country, you're going to have backlogs, you're going to have waiting lists, you're going to have people who are unable to get the care altogether. It would be a public health and civil rights catastrophe. It really leaves me speechless, honestly, because if you actually play out the consequences, 
I actually am a little bit surprised that we're not at a forum fire across the country um, about this case because it does feel that urgent and that important. I know we don't like to play guessing games, but I'm still going to ask. The judge appointed to this case is Judge Matthew Kesmerick, a Trump appointee who openly opposed Roe v. Wade. How likely do we think that it is that this judge can see the the faults in the argument of ADF? And what do you think are the various outcomes we could see? So ADF in this case purposefully filed this case in the Northern District of Texas in Amarillo, which is a Mm. single-judge courthouse where the cases are automatically assigned to Judge Kasmerick. So they really had the opportunity to pick their forum in this case. Um, And you're right that Judge Kasmerick, you know, he was appointed by Trump in 2019. And since that time, he's issued multiple major anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ, and anti-contraception rulings. So he recently ruled that teenagers could be barred from accessing contraception without parental consent. And in fact, in that opinion, he questioned whether the constitutional right to contraception could survive the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. It is not an accident that the plaintiffs filed in this particular district. And I think, you know, we all should be concerned about this lawsuit, period. And, you know, the plaintiffs chose where they decided to file the case. Um, In terms of the possible outcomes here, I think there are basically three. Judge Kessmerich could deny their request for an injunction. The plaintiffs have filed uh, uh, their their lawsuit, but they've also asked the court to rule immediately to Mm -hmm. take away Mifepristone. The court could deny that motion, um, which, again, that's the outcome that should happen in this case Mm -hmm. for any of a number of reasons, on the merits and also on the procedural considerations that we were talking about earlier. Or the judge could do a sort of partial grant of the injunction and reinstate So keep Mifepristone on the market, but force the FDA to reinstate some of the restrictions that were lifted in 2016 that we were talking about earlier. That would be a really bad outcome because it would force doctors to practice outdated medicine and it would really, really limit the terms on which medication abortion were available, but it wouldn't wouldn't take it entirely off the market. And then the third outcome, which is the most problematic to say, I mean, the understatement of the year, Um, would be a full grant of the preliminary injunction, um, which would mean that mifepristone... Immediately. Yeah, medication abortion, as we know, it disappears across this country. I mean, that's, you know, again, one of the really important things to bear in mind. It's not just Texas, right? This case was filed in Texas, but if the judge orders um, this sort of full grant of the injunction, it would mean that medication abortion disappears um, across the country. I really hope that that is not what we see. When are we expected to hear about any of this? So the briefing on the motion for a preliminary injunction is going to be complete on February 10th. And technically, the judge can rule any time after that. So I imagine the judge is going to take time to review the briefs that come in on the 10th. So it's probably not likely to happen that day or you know in the immediate days after. But I think the case could... Um, have a decision, you know, in the weeks after February 10th, so sometime potentially in February, um, at which point it's likely to 
one way or another rocket its way through the court system, and it could, you know, be before the Supreme Court sometime in the spring. This all flies in the face of decades of calls from anti-abortion politicians and advocates that abortion should be left to the states. Like, that was the rhetoric that, you know, many people were using after the Dobbs leak um, and then after the actual Dobbs decision. It feels like here they're actively trying to do the opposite of what they all said. What does this tell us about the anti-abortion movement's goals? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're absolutely right. Uh, and the goal has always been the same, which is an outright ban on abortion for everyone. And I think that the, you know, this concept of leaving abortion to the states was always a convenient talking point and a step um, on the road to that longstanding goal. But, you know, you don't have to just look to to ADF's case here. Um, you know, you can look to Senator Lindsey Graham uh, introducing a nationwide abortion ban last year. Look at efforts by um, extremist politicians in some states to try to criminalize traveling out of state to get an abortion or helping someone get out of state to get an abortion. So it was never enough for them just to leave it to the state. They wanted to stop people from getting an abortion altogether. And now you have, you know, this ADF lawsuit, which, you know, ADF has been crystal clear for a long time now that their goal is to put an end to abortion full stop. It's also so interesting to me that they're so fervent in this fight when we know that abortion is actually extremely popular. I mean, even when we had the ability to vote in different states on abortion bans just this past midterms season, we saw abortion win across the country. Abortion rights are, the American people feel very favorably towards abortion rights and abortion access. To me, that seems like a, you know, if these folks are not enticed by just pure human dignity or human rights or what all of those things, right? That the political implications do seem like they would be bad for the anti-abortion movement. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, like look at the midterm elections. Like you said, every time that voters in states and not just what we think of as blue states, but Kansas, Kentucky, right. states that are not thought to be, you know, liberal bastions, when the voters had a chance to consider the question of abortion, they consistently, without exception, favored more rather than less abortion access. Um, they don't want their rights being taken away. They don't want politicians interfering with their own very personal decisions. Um, and that is absolutely a correct explanation and diagnosis of what happened in 2022, Yet here we are. And I, I, I can't explain the politics of the other side here because it does seem unwise from a political standpoint, but it's also right. just— Even if we're just saying, okay, like politically, like, you know, if they can't think about anything else, think about politics, it doesn't seem s smart. It doesn't seem like a good idea to do what voters have consistently said we right. don't want. Abortion polls yeah. you know, the way it does because people want— their rights and don't want politicians to take them away. The politics are important, but, you know, these are people's lives and rights. It's so much bigger than that, but you're certainly right that, like, it's in its most crass terms politically unwise, but it's mm -hmm. also just, like, it's devastating politically, uh, to, to personally, to, to people's lives across this country. Absolutely. I, I think that's, like, the shred of hope that I hold on to amidst all of the horror is that I believe in a democratic representative government 
the people will have an opportunity to use their voices and have had those opportunities and have shown up. And I guess I just bring that point up because I think it can be really distressing to talk about this for people who are listening, feeling extremely powerless. We have some mechanism of action at the ACLU to like put our concern into action. And so I bring that up not to be dismissive or demeaning to just like the true devastation of it all, but to kind of offer up some glimmer of uh, actionable focus for folks who are sitting at home listening to this and feel pretty hopeless and helpless and terrified. No, you're absolutely right. Like today in Michigan, as a result of people who got out and voted, there is a constitutional protection in Michigan today that didn't exist before the midterms. And abortion is protected in Michigan in a way that, you know, I think, A, it wasn't before, and B, some thought couldn't happen. And so, yeah, it really makes a huge difference um, when voters are able to have their their voices heard because people don't want politicians taking away their rights. Pretty simple. So, anyone prepping for this episode, another wrinkle that we found is that Gen Bio Pro, a major manufacturer of mifepristone, filed a lawsuit arguing that it is illegal for states to ban the drug that is federally approved. If the company wins, states that have banned abortion could be compelled to allow medication abortion. A lot of people seemed to feel very excited that Big Pharma was going to take a social stance, but the Gen Bio Pro case seems to really rest on the decision of this ADF case. Can you update our listeners and kind of spell out the relationship between these two lawsuits? Yep. And there are actually two cases that were recently brought to challenge state restrictions that are inconsistent with FDA's approval for mifepristone. So there was one in West Virginia that you're talking about, and then one in North Carolina as well. You know, the cases are are pretty complicated, but the basic idea behind them is really simple. Um, And it's that in approving mifepristone, the FDA struck a balance between ensuring safe access and avoiding unnecessary restrictions on medication abortion. And that the FDA determined that those restrictions that these states are trying to impose were inappropriate. And these states, by trying to impose restrictions that the FDA rejected, are essentially trying to step into the shoes of the FDA, which would violate principles of federal supremacy and preemption. So Mm -hmm. that's the gist of the cases. I think you're right that if the judge in the Texas case orders FDA to withdraw approval for mifepristone, um, which again, not to beat a dead horse, but again, it's completely unprecedented for a court to do that. But if this court does that, then I think the other cases that you're talking about would likely go on the back burner until mm-hmm. hopefully that catastrophe is somehow fixed. I think the the Texas case is really front and center here. But I do mm-hmm. agree that those, those um, preemption cases um, are an exciting ap- opportunity and avenue to push back on unnecessary and harmful state restrictions. Interesting. Okay, so we'll we'll have to really wait and see on on those. Yeah, stay tuned. With that, can you give our listeners a little bit of a status update? You're on our reproductive freedom team. You are busy, busy, busy. Of what other lawsuits that ACLU is involved in regarding reproductive access and and rights? Can you give us a little bit of a a, a brief? I mean, the big picture is that after Dobbs. The fight for abortion access has largely been playing out in state courts. So 
Dobbs ruled that there is no federal constitutional protection for abortion, but it didn't and couldn't say anything about whether state constitutions go farther to protect um, people's uh, constitutional rights, including the right to abortion. And so the ACLU has been fighting on behalf of people seeking reproductive health care um, in a number of states. Uh, so Kentucky, Indiana, Florida, Iowa, Utah, and others. We're waiting on a lot of decisions in those cases. And in a case like Florida, you know, briefing was just ordered from the from the Florida Supreme Court. So things are going to be happening in the next weeks and months in all of those states. You know, we hope that the courts in the, all of those states are going to protect the rights of people to make these, you know, fundamental personal decisions. And how can people support you and your work and your team's work? Vote. I mean, I think pay attention to these issues, contact your politicians and vote. I think, you know, at the end of the day, they are not going to be taking abortion away, you know, from Michiganders because people showed up and went to the ballot and expressed themselves. And so, you know, I think the more and more people have the chance to be heard on that, um, the better off we'll be. Okay, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you coming and breaking some of this down for us. I'm sure we'll have you back as we follow this and get updates. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, keep showing up.